This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We help people to make space for what matters and get more done. And we partner with some of the world's leading companies who share our mission to transform the world of work. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Denise Nurse. Denise is the co-founder of the Black Founders Hub, a network of black entrepreneurs that was started here in the UK, but is now increasingly global. She's also a lawyer and entrepreneur, having started, built, and then sold a really unusual law firm. And she's also worked as a TV presenter for Sky Travel and on shows like Escape to the Country and Watchdog. In this episode, we talk about race and how to encourage black entrepreneurs, the journey from starting and growing to selling a business. And I think you're going to really learn a lot from Denise's outlook and energy. So let's get straight into it. This is Denise Nurse. We're rolling. I'm with Denise Nurse. How are you doing? Really well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, really nice to connect. And there's so much stuff I want to talk to you about. Let's start with the Black Founders Hub. And this is something that you have launched with Dave McQueen, who's been on this podcast before. Why the Black Founders Hub and what does it do? And just give us the background to that. Why do we need something that's called Black Founders Hub? I am a Black founder and I ran my own law firm for many years together with my business partner, who was um, who is a good friend, and her name is Jambi Patel. So she's an Asian founder. And we, um, like many black founders, got used to being in the minority in most rooms we're in, in most business circles we're in, most meetings we're in. And I didn't identify it as a, an issue, to be honest. It just is a fact of life. Um, I went to a school where I was in the minority. I went to a university where I was in the minority. I went to a job as, as a black person doing certain jobs and roles. It's, it was just a fact of life. But um, the business was quite successful. And 2017, I was standing on a stage giving a talk to about 4,000 um, lawyers and people in the legal industry. And I was talking about women's equality. But I looked around the room and again, I was one of, I could barely point out any other black people. And I was so proud of what we'd done with our business and how we'd got it to a, a really great level. And all I could think about was not being the only one. So like I, and so that was what I incorporated into my speech that day. I was like, I don't want to be the only one. I'm not a unicorn. I know there are others out there. So that was the seed for me for Black Founders Hub, like trying to find other black entrepreneurs in the professional services field and bring us together and that's how I found our third partner so it's myself David and Rashida Abdullah so she was one of the other four black people I think at that event and she is a black lawyer who'd worked at a magic circle firm and who was just about to launch her own business we connected and said I'd love to do something like this she said I'd love to be part of something like this Um, but we didn't do anything straight away life took over and then like so many things last year, the murder of George Floyd was a catalyst moment. And I, um, in my self-reflection, went through the emotions many people went through. So there was profound grief and sorrow. It was traumatic. And it made me think again about my experiences as a black person um, in the UK. And 
having had all of those emotions, my go-to mm. tends to be, what can I do to make a change? And so this idea came back again, like, well, what if we, what can we do yeah. to make things better? And I, I love business. So my go-to is to help support others in business and to find ways of creating success. So that's kind of why, um, because instead of us all being on our own, if we come together as a collective, we know that peer networking works. There's something called the old boys club. That was the thing for a reason. So I just want to create that um, for black founders, that safe space, that space to be yourself, um, that space to connect and to do business. And the key thing with that, what we're doing is it's, um, it's for business at a higher level. So it's not startups, it's to take existing businesses that could kind of just carry on at a certain level and inspire them and support them to get to seven-figure turnover and beyond to create something really economically powerful. And I guess, you know, having done, you know, ha having done a startup and grown it and then sold it yourself, so you're in this position now where you're, you have so much of, of that experience that you can then pass on to, to other people. I wonder just to sort of flip that round. So when you've now been working with lots of lots of other black founders and creating this network, what have you learned from them about the issues facing black founders as opposed to facing white founders or other founders? You know, in some respects, the issues are the same. We're all business people. We're all, you know, struggling to find capital and funding and to get started, to make contacts, how to sell, your confidence the main issue really is the need for a collective and a safe space where you can just show up as you. You don't. There's mm. a certain amount of who you are that you don't have to explain before yeah. you can move into the conversation. And that is the experience that, that a lot of black people and, and people from all sorts of other marginalised communities feel. The part of the reason I knew this would be work and be powerful is because I joined a women's network. So when I got to, yeah, four or five of my business and we were doing okay, um, but I wanted to do better, I was recommended to join um, an organisation called the Women's Presidents Organisation. Now, I'd been a member of many other business networks, but not one that was a small group of women CEOs of a certain level. And being in that space, just where we turned up and we could unapologetically talk about whatever it was, and it was a mix of childcare issues, or there were single women, there were older women, there were young women, we could talk about, you know, health issues and whatever it was. But we started the conversation from a place of knowing, uh, without apology, without explanation, more than I had in any other circle. And that ability to show up like that and be vulnerable was really, really precious. And that's the thing I'd say I've noticed the most about the, the collective that we have here, that they're all plugged into business networks. They're all doing all the right things anyway. But the the force of energy of being around other people who kind of you can speak to on a certain level, who understand have a certain understanding with you, um, has been has been emotional at times. It's just it's really quite touching. And to know that we exist, just that feeling of you're not the unicorn, <laughs> that we exist and we're all we're all working hard and we're at that level and we've all we're bringing that collective together. So I'd say that is the most significant thing. I feel like that's like a really fundamental thing in leadership. So, you know, in when if you're putting together a team or working with people, um, you know, and, and likewise just in, in sort of creating, 
you know, spaces or dialogue of all kinds of things. It's like there's a real human need for acceptance and a real human need for for vulnerability, right? And to to have that comfort to be able to be vulnerable. And not often when you have uh, that level of comfort, that's where you, you feel much more able to just sort of explore the more knotty issues that are actually sometimes the ones that just unlock everything and, and make everything work better, right? Exactly. It is that level of vulnerability because it means some of those issues are set aside and then you can actually just deal with your work issues without the added question that you may have in your head that I'm sitting in this room, I'm the only black person amongst a room of white middle-aged men, you know, and what do they think of me when I say I didn't hit my numbers this month? Am I just reporting fact or am they also thinking, oh, we've got one, we've got one in here and she's not good enough? That may not be true, but your own thoughts in your own head can be an inhibitor because you feel out of place. If you're not even questioning your race when you sit in a space, you can move past that and then get on with the work. Yeah. Um, it's really powerful. And as I say, it's the same. It's, it's not to say that, therefore, we end up with pods of only very exclusive groups, that everyone should only work in exclusive groups. That is not the purpose. But having a space where you can connect like that fuels your interactions elsewhere so we can be collaborative and, and diverse in the way we should be working with organisations. But I think recognising the need for that is, is really important. And as I say, you know, the proof is there. The oldest, one of the oldest networks going that seems to be doing it really well for all of its members, the Old Boys Network, where, you know, you get together in a club and you hang out and you, you meet at a certain level, seems to have done wonders. So I just want to create a piece of that for us. Yeah, like, and I I wish you well in, in creating that and expanding that. And also, it'd be quite good to smash up the Old Boys Network as well on a, on a whole other level. Oh, absolutely. I like flipping tables. I don't, I mean, the other, the other I mean, there's so many reasons for starting it. I mean, one of the other reasons is I just got fed up. I've, I've been talking about diversity and inclusion for a long time and, and different ways of working. The, the, the law firm I ran was all about flexible working and just, trying to do things differently see a different way of having a workforce so that people wouldn't have to do what we're doing and you can just show up as yourself and you're catered for and you're thought about um but progress is just so slow so I'm from the legal profession and we have been talking about this for a long time and at a certain level you'll see the numbers of women entering the profession are going up considering that women have only just been allowed to become solicitors for just over 100 years we celebrated 100 years since women were legally, it was actually illegal to be a lawyer 100 years ago, which is just crazy, right? So we've only just got past that 100 years um, and women can be in the profession. So we've now got to the point where entering the legal profession, you're now getting more women than men um, doing law degrees, etc. But we get this do you want to call it a glass ceiling? We get obstacles, whatever it is. Mm. You get to a certain point and that just drops off a cliff. And partnership and leadership of the businesses and the firms running our profession are still, yeah. you know, we're still trying to get to 30% women. And it's been said many times, but I will say it again. We are 50%, 51% of the population. There is no need for it. And there's, there's a massive pipeline, but there is there are structural barriers that stop you going any further because of the way things were structured to support, you know, a male dominant um, 
with a certain family structure way of doing things. So to change that from within, it's really hard work. And part of the thinking of Black Founders Hub and is just to change things from without rather than within, create something new, show a new way of doing things, and that might be adopted by the mainstream as they've done in so many other areas. Like they won't do it themselves. Once you see an outlier doing it, think of the music industry, you know, being disrupted. Think of all the industries that have been disrupted. They won't do it when there is no motivation to do that, when you're being successful. Even if you think it sounds morally right, there isn't enough motivation to make that change. If an outlier makes a change and is successful, that becomes a driving force for change. So by creating businesses set up differently from the start, you've got a motivator for change. And it's that momentum, isn't it? There's that, there's that um, Derek Sivers um, video where he talks about first followers. And so there's like the one crazy guy dancing in the field and then one other person joins him and that's the first follower. And then what I really like about that that little three-minute three, three minute video is that then what happens then is the momentum gains. And so you suddenly have five, 10, 15 more people all joining him. And then Derek Sivers just kind of says it in a very sort of throwaway way. But for me, it was one of the most powerful things about that whole first follower idea is like, now that's the in crowd. And so that's the place that everyone wants to be. So if you were sat down, not wanting to get involved with something because you thought that you'd look stupid, then that goes out the window because now that's the cool thing to be part of. And so that momentum feels to me like, um, you know, that, that, would, that, that would definitely be the thing to, you know, to sort of take this forward, right? Like once you can start to, to, to have proof of concept and start to gain a bit more of a movement, um, then that will definitely happen. Exactly. I mean, the vision I have in my head is, you know, hugely powerful organisations where 90% of the leadership is women or 90% of the leadership is black. Yeah. And so that will sound really strange to some. Notice if it sounds strange, why? Because we're used to the opposite or something different. Yeah. But having those collectives all doing well, all proving success, just proves that it can be done differently, as you say. And then there's then there can be collaboration, there can be mergers, there can be adoptions of new ways of doing things. Um, so that's the vision I have. I'd love to see that visually, a real change of the narrative and a change of the visuals of yeah, what for successful sure. business looks like. Shake it up, man. And um, <laughs> feels like the legal profession is, and professional services generally is um, definitely primed for disruption, right? Yes, well, that's, I mean, we've spoke, focused at Black Founders Hub on professional services in particular um, because in some ways it's a level playing field in that you can, you know, you get your qualification of whatever it is, you become, you know, you move into finance or consultancy or marketing. Um, and there are, as I say, there there are more people coming in through the ranks and getting to university and, and coming out the other end with the, the professional qualifications. So you've got the starting point and then what? So it's just this really ripe, fertile yeah. ground. Also, I think it's something that we do really well in the UK and we're in this changing landscape. We don't know what's going to happen. We've had, obviously, COVID. We've got Brexit. Um, and one of the things that we do well is professional services. We have some excellent professional service outputs and we contribute a huge amount to the economy. So I think from a business perspective, there's a massive opportunity here to shake things up, to encourage new models and new ways of, of doing things. Um, and quite frankly, like any, most things, I, what's what I know. So if I know it, that's where I'll start. Um, and David and Rashida were on professional services as well. So very opportunity to tap in there. 
um, and make change. And the interesting thing has been, so we're not exclusively for lawyers. In fact, it's about anyone in professional services. So each group of 10, so we're gathering groups of 10, um, we put them together in a cohort and then they commit to working with each other for 12 months at a time. So they meet, they pay a coach, they get access to information, resources, those who've walked the walk and are you know, a few steps ahead, come back as fellows to share. Um, but within that group of 10, they're from non-competing um, disciplines. So in right, it, we'll okay. have education, marketing, HR, environment, property. Um, and the same story is told no matter which profession you pick. It's, it's, there isn't one that says, oh, no, it's all working well here. It's no, very recognisable that there's a limit to how far you could go or the structure of the way the profession worked wasn't conducive to how they wanted to be. There was a reason they started in and then left. So you mentioned part of the 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 kind of seed for all this um, was obviously sort of looking to do something off the back of what happened with George Floyd and that kind of huge outpouring of of emotion and intent and, and everything that happened. We're recording this summer 2021. So I'd love to know from you just like what, what you think is what you think has changed or not changed over the last year. The number one thing I think that has changed is we have changed, i.e. black people. Um that's what I hope. Certainly that's what I feel in my circle, that we have changed. We have decided enough is enough. So there's Black Founders Hub, but there are several other organisations and starts and people just trying to do things differently. Unfortunately, I don't feel the same about everything else. And I think I think last summer was a collision of so many event, life events happening at that moment, which created yeah. the catalytic moment. So, you know, the world was on pause. It was all quite new. Um, social media allowed the pictures to be shared very rapidly so we could see very clearly there could be no great area about what happened, how long it took for him to die, the fact that he was, you know, saying he couldn't breathe, the fact that there were witnesses trying to say stop. It was all played out. And as a world, we didn't have much else to be doing at that time because we were all locked in. And so everyone could collectively focused. It chimed with what was going on. There were so many reasons that I felt the universe had that moment happen the way it did. What we hoped would happen, I think, after that was the kind of outpouring of grief and action and um, the collective, oh my gosh, we didn't realise it was that bad, we should do something, would really be meaningful. So I remember watching all of the businesses making the commitments and the black squares, if you remember, uh, always a bit sceptical about that, but hey, I'm all for good intention and giving people the benefit, a bit of the doubt. A year later, I feel very strongly the agenda has moved on, that pledges that were made had no substance behind them, that doing the real work to make change is just a bit too difficult. So we started with the listening exercises and many organisations I know went into, hey, we're listening, how did we miss this? This wasn't just about someone's murder. You're, you know, this outpouring of people saying, you know, like the Me Too movement. Actually, this is my, this is my daily reality. This is what it's actually been like working here. This is why I'm so upset because I carry this level of fear, or this level of racism, or I deal with microaggressions, or all of these things. And there was this wonderful moment. What's been, what's changed has been the ability to have a bit more of a conversation at first. There was, you know, people yeah. reading books. There was, there are now discussions about white privilege and 
you know, being anti-racist and all of these sorts of uh, terminologies that weren't necessarily being discussed openly before. So that's that was great. But beneath that, um, I think we've seen organisations that have struggled to make the real culture change that's required if you want to make systemic change. It's after you've listened, then what are you actually going to do? And to do different, you have to be different, in my view. And I think that is that is the struggle. And I think what's happened is after a while, it's just it's gone back to, well, um, there are lots of it. The all lives matter, which is one of the things that came up. I know yeah, it's cringy, yeah, but it's yeah. I think that's what's yeah. happened. Everyone's you know then the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and we can just put everything together that's other, and say, hey, we collectively want to fix it, rather than. Um, yeah, kind of allowing the space for the individuals, groups to be heard and to speak and, and for real change. And I say that, um, I mean, my evidence for that, other than how I feel, um, is um, uh, the people that I'm speaking to, the, the organisations that I'm aware of. I know that lots of um, groups were spawned and there was, as I say, this listening moment. But when it's come to the tangibles, and the tangibles would look like um meaningful ways of moving people up the chain so yeah going oh actually i really do want to look at how we will get more diverse leadership and not just hiring a black person as the dni person but looking at all the other roles um that would be denote some some real change the fact that on our football pitches you know we're still having this debate about whether it's okay for the football players to take the knee or not and the booing and that and that's the level of conversation says to me nothing's changed the fact that our government issued a report that says there is no structural racism and systemic racism and there's nothing to see here and um aren't we doing well tells the story it's like okay <laughs> okay we see where we're at i'd agree with a lot of that and i think the um the thing for me is is that it, it feels like something that just shouldn't like in a way it's of course it's political but in a way it shouldn't be politicized right so this the whole taking the knee thing and also it feels like some of the companies in the states um you know base camp and coinbase are making these statements and it seems like what they're saying is we're sort of yes. tired of listening right that that's kind of like the uh, you know, at the heart of that Coinbase statement about we're going to be yes. purpose-driven or mission-driven or whatever it was, and at the heart of that um, base camp thing about we will not discuss politics, it's like this. we shouldn't be saying that this is discussing politics. We should be saying this is discussing whether people feel safe and included and comfortable at work, right? Like that, to me, that's just not controversial. And, you know, the idea of the idea of base camps um, statement i think i mean it led to a lot of, of of resignations at that company but i i would i would say that that's like in a way it's just bad hr rather than it being them playing politics right it's like they they've actually just shot themselves in the that, foot because they that thought should they had be a the choice change. not that to listen be the change. i think you 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 don't have a choice exactly. not to listen in in those circumstances because that's your community like your your workplace yeah. is your community right feels to me like there has been an acknowledgement in some companies and in, in some places that I've interacted with that there's a difference between 
racism being about a person's, you know, uh, a person's bad view of race versus racism being a structural thing that isn't necessarily contained in any one person's evil brain, but is actually just a systemic thing that sort of exists. And I, I feel like there has been some progress on, on just understanding that. But I guess I guess where it falls down is, like you say, what do people do with that? And it's hard, right? This stuff is yeah, really it's hard. It's hard and too. you have to want so, to do hard things. Yeah. And you have to have enough yeah. vision to see the benefit of doing hard things, not for tomorrow's numbers, but beyond that. And that's why I think the current leadership of many organisations might not be the ones to do that. But what... If we change, that's what makes the difference. If Coinbase comes out with those you know, statements like that and then people stop working with them or they leave, that makes a difference. If we all sit back and go, it's too hard and that's just the way it is, which is how I think it was for a long time, including for black people. This is not a... I think we'd all got to a point where we were collectively like, this is just the way it is and we'll all just carry on. Or not all, but a lot of people. I do think last year was a wake-up moment for that to say, actually... This is not just how it is or should be. And um, I think one of the great things to come out of this will be um, changes to the curriculum, really getting to the nitty gritty of the stories and the conditioning that we perpetuate. So the toppling of statues, the discussion around why there are statues, this discussion around the wealth that our country is built on, the discussion around the empire and what that really means and how it evolved. And yeah. that is part of all yeah. of us collectively, I get to claim the empire as much as anyone else in this country. And it's an uncomfortable mm. past to reconcile with because it's part of what makes this country great, in quotes, and part of what's collectively caused so much suffering across the world. We don't get to just have one part of it and not the other. But collectively, owning the story and telling all parts of the story is what I think is going to be the powerful piece that will create the change for the generations to come just a proper understanding. I think so much of this is just ignorance, a real just lack of any thought about how we are where we are. And so David Olashogu's work and all of the work of all these great historians who are really trying to piece that together for people now, like, you know, the mills are there, were there for a reason. Our buildings look the way they do for a reason. We were all part of this economic triad of, you know, slavery and produce and the wealth that we're built on is because we didn't pay for our labor for many years there's 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 so much that if it was just talked about everyone would just have a different understanding i think but to pretend that that didn't happen and we were somehow magically really um we've done really well in this country and and, and it was that was just a blip in the past and we were not really in fact we did we abolished slavery and aren't we aren't we great you know, let's tell the whole story and give everyone their voice. And that, if that happens, and I'm seeing some of that, I'm working with one of the universities at the moment, they're really going root and branch. They have a project going through every part of their curriculum to look at how they are teaching, whether it's from science to history to English and what messages and what stories they're telling and what examples they're using, really doing that work. And as I say, that's hard work. Not everyone's going to vote for it. It's going to be like, why do we need to do that? So the brave leaders who do that are the ones I salute. It feels like there's 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 this almost like a fatigue setting in in certain organisations, and I like what you said before about um, there was a time where 
black people have just got to a stage of saying we're just going to like settle with this just being how it is versus then sort of crossing that chasm into no we're not going to settle settle for that anymore and it feels like that fatigue needs to be over to be able to be overcome in order to get a lot of organizations really much more focused on that how how do you keep up your energy around this and how do you how do you how do you notice people in the black founders um uh, networks that the cohorts that you're um working with like everything the key for me it's really simple you have to surround yourself with people who lift you higher you have to take the time to be hence the, the need for black founders hub do you have to be in situations where you have got to have this discussion or it's going to be less comfortable then make sure you're filling up your cup so you've got a space or an outlet to have discussions with others to share to talk to connect um, and then that just will help you move forward in your day-to-day of whatever you've got to do. Um, that, I mean, certainly for me, that's been on many levels what I've been doing over the last year. So Black Founders Hub has been a huge part of that. And I know I've had the privilege of um, not working for an organisation and creating my own, but creating a space where others can come and do that has been huge. Um, and I've been doing that in, in other things as well, really noticing the need for uh, the collective and for people to have a space to talk and to connect and then to go back out into the world and, and kind of interact so that and then all the basics nothing ever changes in that you know keeping healthy exercise walking finding something to smile about life isn't all doom and gloom <laughs> you know if you with all of these things we want to do is always because we're looking for something to bring us joy whatever it is you're looking for in the world right you're looking for a feeling of peace or of happiness why do you want to make this change? Because you want to feel happy, you want to feel better. So trying to feel better now, ahead of time, is my number one tip. What was that phrase I heard um, a little while ago? Uh, don't don't calm down by fixing the problem. Fix the problem exactly. by calming down. <laughs> right? so like looking for those little micro yeah. wins yes. in your day, or you know, little micro moments of of joy, mm. like you say. Um, yeah, really important. Okay, so I'm going to interrupt the podcast, which you know I don't do very often, and that must mean I've got something very important to share with you. So what I want to share is I've got these two really big events coming up, and I would love you to join me. Let's let's move on to let's talk about um, Halebury. So Halebury was the law firm that you uh, referred to before that you started and then sold. Um, so how long was that journey from the starting point to to so then you became the VP of um, Elevate the company, right? And then exited from that. So how long was that whole journey? That whole journey started in two thousand and seven and ended in um, last year in April twenty twenty. So 13 years. So I um, I qualified as a lawyer in 2000, uh, the Montana Millennium, yeah, and um, started in a city practice. For all the reasons we've just discussed, I realised that that was not going to be the world I wanted to progress in and went to work in-house for Sky Television. Um, and actually, as a place to work, that was really enjoyable. It was, um, certainly in my legal team, 
there were only 21 of us but you know there were there was a nice diverse group it was run by a woman it was I felt very comfortable there I felt um able to progress um a meander, a meander which we'll come back to. Yeah. I, I stopped being a lawyer for a while, became a television presenter. Yes, I was going to talk to you about that. Yeah, so we will talk about that. And that came about because I was at Sky and they ran a competition. But what it gave me was time, while I was no longer practising as a lawyer for a business, was time to decide again um, whether I still loved the law and that profession. Like I had this outball. You can go and do something completely different. It's like deciding would you marry your partner again or something. You know, they recommend you ask yourself <laughs> That's that. That's probably a dangerous <laughs> question for lots, dangerous lots of people one. listening to this, right? <laughs> and it was that. And, and the surprise was I said yes. Yeah. You know, having been a lawyer for a while, um, which can be quite tiring, my thought process was I actually like the law. I like being a lawyer. But there are things that I would change about the way it's practised. And so that, for me, was the reason for starting Halebury. Um, which are co-founded with Jan V. Patel, who had been his good friend of mine and we were trainees together. And actually she'd got to a similar point in her life and had, had started, she started the, the, the business and we had coffee and she, she was just figuring out what to do and looking for a partner. And we both had thought this makes sense. Let's create the type of law firm that we want to work for. That I can buy into. So, so that's where we started coffee shops, um, Soho House, kitchen tables back in 2007 in West London. Did you have any moments where you had to sort of plot out your working relationship to make sure that it was separate from your friendship and just like navigate that whole that whole thing of... Because of, essentially when you go into business with somebody, you're quite quickly sharing each other's life savings account, right? <laughs> like it's part of the deal. So did did you have any conversations around that and, and what were the boundaries that you sort of put in place around that? Absolutely. So I'm a commercial lawyer by background. Javi's an employment lawyer. But it's one of my my big things is that when you start off in something to set those boundaries mm. and to it's not even boundaries, it's expectations. Yes. Yeah. Things can change. But let's at least have the discussion. I'm always intrigued and still surprised at how many people don't have those discussions before they get into these unions that it's all about the shiny thing they're going to do and people again don't want to have the difficult conversations so it's something Jambi and I had right from the start and we talk about our union as like a marriage so having brought up that analogy it it, it was like that you know she knows as much about me as my husband would in terms as you say you're sharing financial information um but yes, I would recommend it. There, I mean, there's a there's a legal construct for it. So there's your shareholders agreement or your partnership agreement. And I think people fall into the trap of thinking that's some legal document that you have to have because you're supposed to have it. And we'll think about that again in 20 years' time when we're going to sell. Yeah. So my process is different to that. And then you know, thinking about what you do in productivity, I find you get so much done so much quicker once you just have this conversation which is a one-pager just looking at why you're doing it, you know, and asking each other what's the purpose. And you, you'll assume the other person's on the same page as you, and they very rarely are. You know, my purpose was, I said very clearly, I'm really interested in running a business. I want to know what it's like to build something from the start, grow it, and get it to a stage where either I can sell it or I can hire someone else to run it and I don't have to be involved. 
Janvi was on the same page. There was a third business partner who that wasn't her her dream. Actually, what she wanted to do was um, really be involved and run it more like a partnership model. So that that's very basic conversation at the start had us all going, oh, so I think it's going to go in this direction. You think it's going to go in that direction. What do we want to do? And we had to make a decision about what this was going to be. And then we looked at um, what our reasons were, were for outside of business. So at that point in time, we were all single. But I wanted to get married and have a family at some point, and so did Janvi. So we talked about that. So then we decided that our friendship and our family would come first always. And if one person needed to adjust to look after that, then that would always come first and we would find a way to make that mm. work. So we very clearly had that discussion up front. And then um, I guess because we're lawyers, we always look at what's the worst case scenario. So we always had our, if this all goes wrong, what are we going to do plan? Yeah. And we had insurance to the hilt, but also our backup plan, you know, Howard, if someone wants to leave, then we shut it down. We both leave. We're not, you know, you know, that was the basics. But we had to have that discussion and idea, and that saw us through difficult times, that reminder of, why are we doing this again? And I and during that time, we tested all of it. So we both got married. Janvi had three children. Then she went to live in LA with her husband. Um, I got married, uh, got my two stepchildren, so I became an instant mum, moved to Southampton so I could support them. And then I had my son, who was born three months premature, and I had spent, you know, three months um, in a NICU in in with him in the neonatal unit. So all of those things got tested, like, oh, how are we going to do this? How are we going to keep going? Or what are we going to do? But we were always able to come back to, well, why are we doing this? This is our purpose. This is what we committed to. This is how we will make decisions. And it made decision-making so much easier. Yeah, tell me more about that thing you said there. So if one of you wanted to leave, then you would both leave and you'd shut it down. So... So if she wanted to leave, but you didn't, then all of your work just sort of goes out the window at that moment, though, right? It's not necessarily goes out the window, but you go, it's not a, um, I can force you. Like, we, that would be the starting point. That, that So that you're always in tune then with what the other one wants. You could then look at it. Rather than this be, am I just, is someone trying to edge the other person out? Yeah. Um, oh, that kind see, of process, okay. thought process. Yeah. Um. Well, you want to leave, so I'm going. Oh, well, I'm going to encourage you to leave now. <laughs> so that then I have 100 you know, of the shares or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, it takes it to a different, and it means you start the conversation about actually what what do you really want to do? Why do you really want to do it from a different thought process? Yeah, because I guess all of it really comes down to just being open with intentions, and also like, I mean, this whole podcast really is 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 you know about that interface between work and life and the values that we have in life versus in work and just that whole thing of where life might take you in a different direction or mean that the business needs to serve you in a different way. I recommend it. I recommend it having that. I do it in everything now. So Black Founders Hub, we've already talked about, we have that conversation, you know, up front. It's a different organisation. It's non-profit. So we very clearly talked about up front. Well, how much time do you actually have to devote to this as an exec, running it, creating it? What's our plan? What if you can only commit so many hours and I can commit more? When do we want to hire someone? Will we ever pay each other? You know, what is, and to not just blindly run into these things and think you'll work it out later. Actually do it at the start while you've got the blank sheet and get those parameters down. Always encourage And them. then also have, my other thing that I would add to that is, uh, yeah, do it at the beginning in that way. 
and then also have spaces where that's all you're talking about so it's not oh, yeah. subtext through the thing yeah. that you're working on right now it's yeah. like okay where are we at and what's the strategy for the yes. next three years and like exactly. coming back to that really <laughs> regularly and I think yeah. so um, Elena who's um, my MD at, at Think Productive and my business partner um I mean we we would do that really regularly where kind of once a quarter we'd go on a big long walk and then that really had to tail off through COVID obviously um and we've tried to do that a bit on Zoom but I think there's just sometimes just no substitute for just either being in the room with someone or going for a walk with someone and just being able to be in that much more human to human taking a step back strategic headspace rather than being kind of in the day-to-day what's the numbers and what's this and and all of that um so yeah I think keep keeping those things regularly um is I've, I've definitely found helpful um let's you you mentioned you, you slipped in a minute ago um oh and then I became a tv star uh, so let's come back to that. So you were working for Sky and then you ended up mm. um, winning this competition. So, yeah, tell us about that. Well, interestingly, I'm clearing out lots of things at the moment. And I found back in 2003, I decided, and I still don't know why, but I decided to invest in a one day television presenting course um, run by an amazing company called Positive. I always big them up and uh, wonderful Glenn McK- McKinsey. Um, so this is 2003. So I've been at Sky for a couple of years. And it's something I, again, recommend investing in yourself. And I did it because I like dancing and performing as my hobby. So back to what brings you joy and keeping joy as part of your life. Um, so I've always done that. And I was doing a lot of um, charity work and working with young people in dance. I was hosting events as part of my hobby. So I think I just decided that would be a nice thing because I was enjoying it to invest in to get some skills thought nothing of it, did it for the day and didn't think much of it. But then a year later, this poster went up at work that said, can you cut it? Do you think you could be the next presenter? And at the time, Sky were trying to make Sky feel less corporate for all of the support services. They were like, we are a TV and media company. It was James Murdoch in charge. And um, let's do something so that the people in the suits in the office, in legal or behind the call centre desks in Scotland, can get involved in our purpose what do we do here we provide entertainment so I entered again in that spirit this will just be fun um but as it turned out it was a serious competition I made it to the top 10 so various rounds and in the top 10 four of us had all done that same television presenting Ah. course (laughs) isn't that interesting so the skills that you learn and we didn't know we'd all randomly decided to do it whatever I guess we all worked at the tv company so there must have been something in our DNA mm. um but that investing in yourself was actually paid dividends I think so our skills but once you're in the top 10 you made a show reel and then you were voted on as to whoever got the most votes got an opportunity to present you know on tv so I presented a press junket which is um doing some interviews for you know a film think of that scene in Notting Hill which I know is really old now but in a hotel room and the stars are there and then journalist after journalist after journalist and I got to be one of those journalists for a day um but I was also offered the opportunity to screen test to become a weather presenter and I said no (laughs) (laughs) what I'm a lawyer and we've talked about my you know my love for law and how much I loved my job and then I'm you know and then then went on to do something else so my brain had severe cognitive dissonance that it could not to marry up this idea of I'm a lawyer and I could be a weather presenter 
So I said no, which is unusual for me. I usually want to do things. Um, and they said, why don't you just screen test, have fun? So when I got back to the principle of having fun, I was like, well, as long as you don't think I'm wasting your time, I thought, okay, I'll have a go. So I had a go and I did actually enjoy it and I learned something. So then I thought, well, if I was going to be a weather presenter, how would that work? Because I can't leave my legal career to start at the bottom of being a, of a TV career. I just, I've got a mortgage now. And um, what happened is I was given a six month secondment. So um, it was made to work for me. I could go and be a weather presenter for six months and then go back to law. But as the universe would have it, I never went back to my legal job. I became a full time weather presenter for Sky News. And then I got an opportunity to become a presenter for the BBC. So I presented Escape to the Country, a property show for seven years. Um, and all of that I did whilst um, launching and building Halebury. So for a while I had a multi-track career um, and it was great. What I learned, I learned so much. I learned, I learned that I can be other things other than the label that I'd attached to myself from university. You know, I'm a lawyer and that's who I am and that's what I do. I was like, well, no, you're not. You can be this other thing as well. I learned teamwork. Um, I love working with TV crews. I love working on productions for that moment of we've all got to come together to create something. You have to get past the obstacles. You have to get past the egos. You just have to make this happen. Um, and I like storytelling. So I loved Escape to the Country, working with these couples who were trying to change their lives by moving to some often places they'd never been. They'd only been like for a weekend before. <laughs> like, I'm going to move my whole life and go live in this village with this dream. I was always intrigued as to what would make you want to do that. So a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And I think I read somewhere that you, you put that on hold to have your kids. No, no, that's true. Um, as I mentioned, my son was born in 2013 um, prematurely. So he was, we have no reason, no idea why, but I was only at the end of my second trimester. Um, Helbury was growing and doing really well. And, and Jamby had already moved to LA. <laughs> I'd already moved to Southampton. <laughs> And I was doing the TV presenting. And so at that moment, something had to give. Um, and and TV required me to travel around a lot. So I focused instead of being, being very close to my son um, and then put all um, efforts into Helbury. And, and to be fair, at that point, we then grew it quite rapidly. Yeah. Do you think it's something that you go back to? For sure. For sure. Never say never. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never say never. Um, so you've just had this really interesting career with with lots of different facets to it. I wonder if you've got any, because uh, obviously uh, part of this podcast also is about productivity. Do you have any any sort of common, I guess you know, sort of common techniques or common approaches that you find have worked across all those different uh, different sort of areas of work that you've been part of? In terms of the why I do the various things, and I think knowing your why and what you love is um, important. So the, the the opportunity to to create something new, do something differently, has been, always been important to me. So with Halebury, we weren't just a law firm; we were about flexible working. So finding a way to to change people's lives is what I was was is the thing that I I love. Um, and helping them to tell a new story about who they are and what they are. And when I, so whenever there's a difficult moment, and there are always plenty, um, 
when I think, oh, what do I love about what I'm doing? That is my kind of guiding force that I'll keep doing it. If I don't have an answer to that anymore, that's my time to move on and do something else. But if despite the noise, despite the person who was upset that day or the contract that you didn't win or whatever the thing is that's not going well that day, if I can go, oh, what, but what do I love about this? And with Hailbury, it was I loved working with lawyers and helping them to create a new dream life with Escape to the Country. It was I loved, like I say, being with these people, again, for their dream life with Black Founders Hub. It's helping people move on to their dreams. If I'm doing that, I'm happy and the rest of it will fall into place. So I, I recommend that just, just being really honest with yourself about what is it you love? What is the thing that when you're doing that, the you know, time stops and, and you're no longer clock watching or, or stressed out? And that that is different for everyone. That's that's the beauty, isn't it? Some people it's your numbers and your spreadsheet and some people something else. Um in terms of managing all of it I would say managing my brain has been the number one thing I've had to do and had to learn and so um very early on I have worked with coaches and I've worked with as I said joined networks with always the view of setting aside time to work on the bigger picture of what I'm doing and not getting too sucked into all of the details because the details will keep coming and there will always be more but setting aside that clear time to go what am I doing why am I doing this what's the bigger strategy how can I look at my thinking to make that more effective um is practice that I keep um and then um yeah doing what I love making sure there's always joy (laughs) making sure so keeping up the dancing still head out for some dance classes or just turn the music on and go crazy in the kitchen it feels like there's two or three really common themes just hearing you talk so there's this whole like pursuing your joy and being really intentional about choosing the things that are going to bring you that joy and then something about which I think overlaps with with what also brings you joy which is this idea of people coming together and creating stuff and changing stuff that just feels like kind of runs through you know everything that you've talked about as well and I love that idea that you talked about before about being around people that that fill your cup, which is obviously what you're doing with with Black Founders Hub, but it's also something I think it, it feels like you're really conscious of doing that uh, for yourself and just making sure that you have that in your life, um, which is hugely inspiring. And and then then one other thing I wanted to touch about before we finish was um, just before we um, press record, I was talking about the book that I'm writing at the moment on kindness. And one of the things that you said is, yeah, I think I'm probably a kind leader. And we were also talking about how it's often a real struggle to for people to think about um, who the leaders have been in their life who've been kind. So I'd just love love to hear from you on uh, what what you think kindness looks like in leadership and why you think it's important. And I, you know, we were having that short discussion before we start recording, and it's such a great question because when you first said it, I thought the answer should be obvious, but I've been sitting with it thinking, but what? truly is kindness and is there such thing as a kind leader really um don't we show elements of kindness at some times and not in others and isn't everyone a mixture so i it's actually spawned loads loads more questions in my head um but i think kindness comes from firstly kindness to oneself i think great leaders who have learned or who practice the art of being kind to themselves have the um, 
ability to be kind to others. If you are running yourself to the ground, if you are not saying very nice things to yourself, if you are, um, if you are being your own worst enemy, it's it's hard actually to be to offer kindness to others truly, because it will come from a, a not good place. So, I think I think leaders who are able to do that. Um, are the ones who show true kindness and then there's there's that basic skill of listening uh, which I think is truly kind truly allowing people to be heard in whichever way they show up which requires bravery to do that but that is kind to offer someone that kindness um, and then to consider their viewpoint and <laughs> um, and and really do that as a uh, as an act um, a, a real active thing to really take into consideration someone else's viewpoint, even if it's uncomfortable and I don't like it. Um, and to examine that, which comes back to being kind to yourself and having real um, agency over your own mind and your own thoughts to have that ability to sit with something uncomfortable, hear it, and then see what I can do with that and how I can make that work or not work or what it means for my organisation. Um, so those are my initial thoughts and, and thinking about who I thought was kind. I was laughing when you asked me because I was thinking, oh, I'm thinking of some really like tough leaders that I've had as bosses <laughs> before yeah. who, uh, who I liked. But would I describe them as kind? Um, maybe not. Why would I describe myself as kind? Um, I think I did all those things and listened. But I think the, the kindness isn't a weak word. It's not. It, it's not kind, so walkover. It, as I said, it comes from that place of really knowing and listening, and then sometimes being firm and saying, "This is what we're doing for the good of everyone, or for the good of you, even." And so that sometimes that means at the off, and a, a kind leader is is will make decisions. You know, a kind leader will walk the walk um, and do what they have to do sometimes, and then um, and take the consequences. Um, um, but there's so many things that come into it to kind leadership. I love, um, I'm a big fan of Oprah. Um, I don't know much about the intricacies of how she runs her businesses, but I, I love the way she sets out her purpose and her vision with her team. Um, and she talks to them about intention. So everyone knows what they're doing. <laughs> it offers them the kindness of knowing this is what we're doing here. And this is our guiding principle. And this is how we, sh we show up for each other. I think, that's really kind, just being transparent. She's also like like empathy on steroids, Oprah as well, isn't she? Like just her connection with people and just like just how she builds that trust with people, I think is um yeah, also just a really big part of kindness actually as well. So yeah, um well love to just pick your bra brains on that. That that was great. And um, I think maybe I'll um come back and ask you some more questions on that as the book develops. Yeah, I'm definitely going to think about it a bit more. So, I, yeah, and I'd love, I'm just thinking, I just can't think of a book in, on leadership about kindness. It's such a, a great topic. So I'm sure you'll have a great journey on that. Yeah, that's that, that's what I'm hoping. Um, and you're doing coaching as well. So I don't know if you want to just, as we finish, um, just share where people can connect with you. And if you want to just share any more details of that as well, I'm sure people would love to hear it. Yeah, so um, as my next iteration of self, I've, I sold the business we talked about and April 2020 was going to take a break and travel around the world and 
<laughs> the world stops that and, and that's not going. <laughs> Actually, I like. I'm finally, leave, I'm finally traveling on Saturday. But anyway, um, gave me pause to think about what next and what brings me joy and um, pulling everything together, working with other founders and helping them to scale their businesses um, and find their path is something I'm really passionate about. So I am now offering business and success coaching. And you can find me. It's really easy. DeniseNurse.com. So um, you can just check my website. I do one-to-one or I do a particular course that I'm running. And the idea, I'm particularly working with women, but it's not exclusive. But I'm who I would have wanted when I was in those early days of Halebury. Just um, another businesswoman who's kind of been there, um, has had some of those experiences. And then we talk about things like the things that can sometimes stereotypically be seen as the women don't know anything about finance and knowing your numbers and getting really comfortable around your data. So I come, I t- tackle all of that and get, uh, you know, the people I work with really confident in being the CEO of their business. So knowing their numbers and their data and their marketing and all, all of that stuff, but from a very kind and empathetic viewpoint. But it's brilliant. I love helping others to make an impact. So anyone who's trying to do that, who wants some help, that's what I do. Nice. And we'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. And um, just to say again, just thank you so much for being here and being on Beyond Busy. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, you know, I'm a fan. So, so delighted. It's a real honour to have been um, on the show with you today. So there you go. Denise Nurse, really enjoyed that one. And just want to quick, give a quick shout out to my friend Dave McQueen, uh, who's also been on this podcast before. Uh, Dave is the other founder of the Black Founders Hub and um, introduced uh, me to Denise. I'd never come across Denise before, but just, yeah, what what a, uh, what an inspiring outlook and just love her attitude and how she sort of takes on these different challenges and career guises and stuff and uh, juggling all that with uh, having a kid as well. Uh, just, yeah, hugely inspiring um, and just really enjoyed that episode. So just say elsewhere in my life, things are pretty busy. I'm on the uh, the home straight, really, with the first draft deadline for this new book I'm working on, Kind, which is all about kindness in leadership. At the same time, I'm running right now the Kind for Leadership program that you've probably heard me talking a little bit about on uh, previous episodes uh, of Beyond Busy. And we're also gearing up for the launch on the 4th of November of Six Weeks to Ninja. So if you want to get involved with that, there's still tickets Basically, what we do is over the course of six evenings, over six weeks, I just talk you through all the various aspects of productivity that are in my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. Uh, So there's a whole bit about Inbox Zero. There's a whole thing about really getting weekly reviews um, habitualized as part of your work. There's a whole week on setting up a second brain and really having good systems and just getting everything in place to really get stuff under control Uh, and to just reduce your stress levels at work. So if that is of interest, um, there's a button that you can sign up for. If you just go to grahamalcott.com forward slash links, you'll see the link on there for Six Weeks to Ninja. There's also a link on there to sign up to my mailing list uh, and other links on there as well. So um, if you just go to grahamalcott.com forward slash links and you'll find everything there. And a really geeky thing, um, which is probably of very little interest to most of you, um, just to say, uh, so Podient, which is the place we used to host our podcasts, is no more. And they tried to merge in with um, this other provider and it went really badly for us. And we had 
a lot of work behind the scenes trying to resolve it all. But we are now with Acast. So uh, we're on a new host. I hope that doesn't mean anything for you. I hope you haven't even noticed. Um, But just in case uh, any of you having sort of geeky uh, podcast uh, kind of thoughts uh, when it comes to Beyond Busy, it might be that we've moved over to Acast. So if you notice anything that feels different, uh, feel free to drop me a line and flag it up. Uh, Graham at thinkproductive.co.uk is my email. Drop me a line. I'd love to hear if you notice any difference whatsoever now that we've moved to Acast, a new host. I just want to uh, thank Pavel for his uh, production wizardry and patience um, with this week's episode and also Emily for all of her work behind the scenes on making this happen. And we are sponsored as ever by Think Productive. So if you're interested in uh, training, coaching, workshops for your team, go to thinkproductive.com. And we are all around the world. So wherever you are in the world, there'll be a Think Productive office near you thinkproductive.com that is it for this week's episode and um, you probably have noticed if you're a regular listener that we're back to being a two weekly podcast now rather than a weekly one so we'll be back in two weeks time and the nights are drawing in so yeah if you want to help us to help you get through the winter uh, go to graymalcott.com forward slash links and sign up for six weeks to ninja and uh, wherever you are in the world if it's starting to get darker and colder I just want to say uh, strength to you for the weeks ahead and uh, wrap up warm, stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. Take care. Bye for now.